A listener's note. The following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature, and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. The following episode contains disturbing descriptions of child abuse and sexual violence, and may not be suitable for everyone. It also contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature. Listener discretion is advised. On a hot summer evening 25 years ago, the world watched as Donovan Bailey set the 100-meter world record at the Atlanta Olympic Games. It's an iconic moment in Canadian history, one that many still remember to this day. Then, just a few months later, in the fall of 1996, the Canadian sports world was rocked by another story. And instead of triumph, this one shocked the nation. A man once named Hockey Man of the Year, Graham James, was arrested in a massive sex abuse scandal. Sheldon Kennedy identified himself as one of the victims James admitted to abusing. I remember the significance of that moment. Well, I mean, we were newsmaker. My stories was newsmaker of the year in 97. I mean, it was the biggest news in Canada, Globe and Mail newsmaker of the year in 97. You know, Nancy, I think for change to happen, we needed a story or a person, and that person happened to be me that was going to be on the front pages. And, you know, and I came to accept that role that, that whether I like it or not, that is my role. And people are looking up to me to be that person and to be that voice. And that was only the beginning. There's this sense that, you know, when you tell your story, things are going to get better. All they're you know, it's going to go away, and it's not the case. It actually, for me, it got worse. I'm Nancy Hickst, a crime reporter for Global News. Today, on Crime Beat, I share a story of courage. Sheldon Kennedy came forward, started a conversation around sexual assault, and opened the door for others to do the same. This is The Scars That Last a Lifetime. Sheldon Kennedy grew up in a small town in Manitoba, rural Canada, where hockey is everything. And a lot of kids learn to skate about the same time as they learn to walk. He's the middle child. He has an older brother and a younger sister. Sheldon got serious about playing hockey when he was really young. And that's when he first met Graham James. He watched a, a, a game, I think, in Elkhorn, and he said hi in there or something like that to us and our family or whatever. And then I remember going into a hockey school when we were 12 in um, Brandon, and Graham was one of the instructors at the hockey school. And so he was coaching some sessions. So I, I chatted with him then a little bit. Back in the day, they didn't have like a bantam draft like they do now for like... Um, Western Hockey League, they had lists. So every team had a 50-player list. So you could be put on a list at 12 years old. That means you were protected by that team. So my brother and I were on the Brandon Wheat Kings list. And uh, Graham James was scouting for the Winnipeg Warriors, who was soon to be sold to the Moose Jaw Warriors. Uh, Winnipeg Warriors traded, made a trade with the Brandon Wheat, Wheat Kings for... Uh, a current player and in return they got my brother and I at, at 12 so we were first traded at 12 years old well this was a big thing I mean you know you're it, it was yeah it was a big especially small town right like you're it was a big deal Sheldon recalls Graham James spent a lot of time with his family I probably knew Graham for a year and a half before I went into Winnipeg to, to visit when a year and a half to two years you know, he befriended and bought, got the trust of, you know, my mom and, and, and obviously my dad and, and me, right? I was excited to go. That's when James invited Sheldon to visit him in Winnipeg. It seemed like a dream opportunity. My mom gave me permission and he, it was set up that I was going to take the Greyhound bus in to meet Graham and spend the weekend and... You know, and, and go to this big, it's called the Lions Tournament. It's a big tournament in Winnipeg and watch the tournament. And he, you know, just, it was a, 
it was an honor, right? We just felt we were very lucky, actually, and uh, that, you know, we had this opportunity and it'll be a great experience for Sheldon, you know. And it wasn't, you know, I don't think we had unrealistic expectations that, oh my gosh, my son's going to make it. It wasn't that at all. It was like, yeah, it's, you know, from this small town, it'd be a great experience for Sheldon to go in and, you know, see what hockey's like, see this, you know, big tournament, some of the best players in the province. And yeah, and that's the way it was. It was about an experience, right? And so Graham and Theron met me at the bus stop. When Sheldon refers to Theron, he's talking about former NHL star Theo Fleury, who was also just getting his hockey career going back then. Theo is a year older than Sheldon, so he would have been 15 at that time. Uh, I think we dropped Theron off, I believe, at his billet's place. He was staying at some billet's place, and then I went went over and went over to Graham's place and got my stuff put put down and and you know things were fine. The plan was to stay at Graham James apartment. I should note, it's not unusual for young players to move away from home to pursue their dreams of playing professional hockey. And a lot stay with billet families. We spent the nights at people's places all the time. Like that was so, but you'd, you'd never think that what happened was going to happen because I'd never experienced, heard of that ever in my life. You know, and, and, you know, the first night, I mean, you know, Graham has all the windows taped off and I thought, well, it's just, okay, he doesn't want the light in. By windows taped off, it's exactly how it sounds. There was cardboard over the glass so the light wouldn't get in or perhaps it was so no one could see in. Sheldon said it seemed strange the cot he was supposed to sleep on was set up in James's bedroom. But again, this weekend was a huge deal to Sheldon, and he was with a man who wielded great power in the hockey world. As a kid, you're like, well, okay, I'm not gonna question that, right? So I was trying to go to sleep, and I remember just hearing these noises and, and, uh, and I remember being petrified in the cot. Sheldon was frozen in fear. And I need to warn you, what you're about to hear next is very graphic and disturbing. Yeah, and I'm trying to go to sleep. So I hear him rustling around. He gets out of his bed and, and, he, and he approaches my bed, right? And then he starts touching my feet. And, and, uh, and I remember kicking him away kicking him away and and uh, so he left the bed and then I heard this ruckus going on in the closet and he came out of the closet with a shotgun and he would, well he came out of the closet sat in bed and then the lights went on and so he's laying in bed with a shotgun like with this goofy look on his face and started talking about duck hunting he didn't talk about you know he, like the fear was there right and uh, so you know then he put it away and lights went off and I tried to go back to sleep I mean good luck at that point and then you know, he approached the bed again and, and uh, yeah, and then that's when the abuse happened. He said the next morning, James acted as if nothing had happened. You were dreaming a lot last night and I'm going, frick, thinking to myself, frick, I wasn't dreaming. Sheldon was 14 years old in a strange city all alone with a man who just raped him, a man with power over him. I knew that it was wrong. And I knew it was very wrong, and I knew I didn't like it. But you're so frozen in fear that you didn't know what to do. So I go from, wow, I'm so excited to go in there. What an opportunity. I'm so lucky to this, right? And now I'm petrified. And now I'm stuck in this tortured frickin' apartment for whatever, three or four days. And it's like, you know, you wake up and it's like nothing happened and you're supposed to go about your day. And I just remember just being this zombie and the next thing, next day, it's like, you know, freaking night's happening again. And I don't think I slept for four days. And then you walk into the rinks and you watch how people treat them, right? And it's like, well, fuck, who's going to believe me? Like, who's who the hell's going to believe this kid, right? Sheldon's life would never be the same. I didn't contemplate telling my mom because I'm like, you know, people, mom and dad would be ashamed of me. And it's like, how did I let this happen? And what just happened? I was trying to process it all. Like I could not believe because I went from one extreme of excitement and feeling so lucky, like, holy shit. And my brother being jealous that I got asked, right, to go in to this. 
Well, you stop living your life with um, purpose and passion, and you're you're more or less living your life with this thought of dying. And, and that's the way you're going through life. So it's tough to have dreams when you're thinking of dying. To escape, Sheldon turned to alcohol. I just started living a reckless life. And so, you know, I mean, I got, um, got arrested at 16, um, you know, and I'd been arrested a few times, all alcohol related. And, uh, you know, I was kind of labeled as this troubled, bad kid. I failed out of school. I quit school at 16. When I, my first year away from home, I think I only went to school 42 days. I ended up quitting that year. So I missed basically a year and a half from 15 to 16. I couldn't concentrate in school. You know, I was a cutter, so I was just self-destructing big time. He had a very trusting relationship with my mom. And my dad was basically out of the picture. So, I mean, Graham became somewhat that trusted father figure in our family, right? So if mom had questions about Sheldon, who does she go to? Graham. If my teacher had questions, anybody had questions about Sheldon, who do they go to? Graham. Graham controlled your life. And that's what they did. And, and you know, he controlled the money that I would get paid in junior. So if I didn't have any money, he would ground me for months at a time. And the only place I could go to was his house. So he isolated me away from society, basically, as this young kid and had total access to Sheldon. The abuse continued for years. And the longer it went on, the more Sheldon acted out. I was telling in so many ways through my actions that in today's world people would pick up. But back then, it was just... Sheldon was just a drinking, drinking, troubled, wild kid. And that, and nobody ever questioned that. This is not normal behavior, like, at all, right? People knew. I mean, absolutely people knew. I used to get bugged on the ice, right, from other players and other coaches in the league that shocked up going to bed with Graham again. I mean, Graham was doing this for years before I would have ever met him. Right? And what I know now. But I used to get bugged on the ice when I was playing from other teams. It's hard to imagine that an adult had those suspicions and never took action, leaving a child to be repeatedly abused and then bullied for it on the ice. Well, the coaches on the other team were were bugging me, like cat calling me on the ice. And oh, yeah. And how didn't anybody do anything? <laughs> I guess that's the bigger question. You know, so uh, people basically, you know, knew that Graham was what he was, but I don't think people knew how to deal with it. The cycle of abuse continued. When you're in it, I just didn't know. And I was just too scared to, I just was had this fear. Nobody was going to believe me, right? So um, that was my biggest fear. I wish somebody would have just helped me out and uh, just got in there and said, hey, you know, what's going on? Like, is everything all right? Like, what? Like, you know, Sheldon, I, you know, it's not normal for a kid your age to be going over to their coach's place on school nights till five in the morning. Like, it's not normal, Sheldon. Like, is everything okay? Like, is he doing anything? You know what I mean? Just talk to me. Like, but it, people, it's like I had the plague. People were scared of me. And then Sheldon's life was thrown even further off course. Yeah, I was 17. That happened on December 30th, uh, 1986. But I was 17 and, uh, yeah, playing in Swift on the way to Regina. About, I would say, probably 2.30 in the afternoon. The bus passed a semi and hit some black ice and started swerving and went down in the ditch and hit an approach and flew through the air. And the four guys that died were in the back. There was really no grieving. There was no, nobody had... There was no professional help offered. Sheldon went on to play in the NHL. He thought he finally escaped. You know, I think it's funny, Nancy, because I, I don't really remember dreaming about playing the NHL. Like, I did before I met Graham, but when I, I mean, when I was in the middle of this, I, I don't recall having those dreams. I mean, I never, I mean, if it happened, it happened. I was kind of just going with what was in front of me. And somehow I made it to the NHL, but I don't think I ever had dreams. And I definitely didn't do anything to better my performance 
Um, but somehow I managed up to be there. Uh, and, you know, I, I was just terrified to tell people that I wanted to quit because I knew if I said that, I'd have to answer questions why. And I didn't know how to answer those questions at the time. And, and I wasn't ready. And I don't think society was ready. But there was no escaping Graham James or the scars he created. And then I got was drafted by Detroit. So I went and played in Detroit as a 20-year-old. And... Uh, and my life really spun out of control. I mean, you know, the impact, just getting physically getting away from Graham was, was, you know, I mean, it was good, but um, the damage was done. And uh, I really, you know, got in trouble, like around with alcohol and, you know, got put into treatment center and then got into a car accident and basically almost lost my arm. I got 19 pins and a plate put in my arm and I, very hardly played any games and then that year and then I came back the next year and I dislocated my shoulder had more surgeries and so for the first two years I was quite injury ridden and and then yeah I spent five years in Detroit two three rehab stints uh, 15 days in jail uh, for blowing my probation on a reckless driving charge all the times I was in treatment center back then, it was all about quitting drinking. Nobody even brought any of this stuff. Nobody ever asked me about any of this stuff, right? Eventually, Sheldon ended up playing for the Flames. And that's where I met Graham again, and it was when I came here to Calgary, and, and he was coaching the Hitmen. During his time as GM and head coach of the WHL team, the Calgary Hitmen, James tried to reconnect with Sheldon. That's when, for the first time ever, Sheldon told someone about what happened. He told his then-wife about all those years of horrific abuse. And I remember telling my story, and, you know, I knew Jana was the first time that somebody believed me. Like, she's like, I believe you. And I remember Graham phoning the house, and I remember her saying, like, she, she said, she says, I know what you did, right? I know what you did. And that was it. And I've, you know, I mean, he never called again. And, and it was there shortly after that we, we actually disclosed to, well, Detective Brian Bell was with the Calgary police. And I remember we went to an undisclosed location and, and uh, you know, I told my story. You can find answers to just about anything online, but what about those mysteries that can't seem to be solved? Spooky secrets, which have stumped even the cleverest of clickers. Well, set the mouse aside, because the myths have met their match in the Spotify original. Internet Urban Legends. Every Tuesday, evidence expert Louis Lane and skeptic Eleanor Barnes investigate the Internet's creepiest conundrums, covering conspiracy theories and combing through clues to separate hoax from haunt. Together, they tackle the terrors of Twitter, TikTok horror stories, paranormal YouTube videos, and every unsettling Internet tale in between. Each episode is chock full of disturbing details which are either truly demented or ripe for debunking. Can the gruesome twosome solve these mysteries? Or will they remain internet urban legends? Wade through the weirdest stories on the web and follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Internet Urban Legends. Listen free only on Spotify. Retired Calgary Police Detective Brian Bell remembers that day well. He was one of a team of investigators who took on the case. When he started talking and, and the number of places where these events took place and from an, from an investigative point of view, you have to be in a position where you can capture that information. You have to substantiate the information. So we knew it was going to mushroom into something quite big. Bell said it became clear very early on that Sheldon wasn't the only one Graham James abused. Calgary police worked with police agencies across Canada as investigators tried to track down other victims. It started with Sheldon. And tell us where you were. Tell us the teams. Tell us the cities. Give us the information. So we reached out to all of those different teams. We started garnering information. We started getting team pictures. Uh, we started getting information. And then once we had our, our, our list down of, of folks that uh, we wanted to speak to, that's when we went back to the agencies and um, and started assigning different police departments with interview lists uh, where their, their people could go 
and have conversations with the folks that, that we gave them names of and hoping that they would do one of two things, corroborate what Sheldon had to say and or be in a position where they could find the strength to come forward. You know what? Uh, I'll always uh, be grateful for him, to him, for that. Uh, just, you know, I felt comfortable. I felt that he listened. He heard me. And I think, you know, about six months into the investigation, I remember Brian, uh, Detective Bell connecting with me and telling me that, hey, you know, we have we have another victim that's disclosed and his story is almost identical to yours. The problem was Graham James was a powerful man. Even though there were more victims, police believed the stigma kept many from coming forward. Um, there was there was information that we got from from um, Sheldon that caused us to try to have a conversation with Theo, and I, and I did so on, on several occasions. Among the dozens of possible victims police identified was NHL star Theo Fleury. And I tried to impress upon him the need that, that we really needed to have a chat with him. And um, then I got a, a, a communique from his lawyer saying, if you, um, if you don't stop harassing my, my client, I'm going to charge you with harassment. And I said, well, you do what you need to do, but I really need to speak to him. And um, at that point, um, it, it was just I was just stonewalled as far as that was concerned. And I, I understand where he was, and I understand the pressure that he was under. I think it's important to note, being identified as a victim doesn't mean you're ready to tell your story, let alone go to police. On November 22nd, 1996, police arrested Graham James for the sexual abuse of Sheldon Kennedy and one other victim, who remains protected by a court-imposed publication ban. Soon after, he pleaded guilty to sexual assault in both cases. He admitted to raping these boys hundreds of times. Graham James was sentenced to three and a half years in prison. Sheldon's life from that point on shifted to raising awareness about sexual abuse. That included an 8,000-kilometer journey inline skating across Canada. Thousands of people lined the streets in communities all over the country for a chance to cheer Sheldon on, many of which disclosed their own stories of abuse. From the time I came forward and told my story and became public, the amount of letters and stories and disclosures that we had were in the tens to hundred thousand letters. Like it was unreal. We were getting boxes and boxes of them. That's when I first met Sheldon. It was in 1998 and I was working at a TV station in Red Deer. I was in awe of his courage. I was in my early days reporting, and when I got to cover his story, it was a big moment for me. I played it for Sheldon during our interview for this episode. Holy, I don't think I've ever seen that one. Yeah, it goes back, hey? That's, that's 22, 23 years ago. Yeah, and I think, and not just for boys, I mean, for, for, for girls and women too, like... Um, you know, in general, we didn't talk about that, about the subject of abuse. I know when we started talking about this stuff, it wasn't perfect. Our conversations weren't perfect, but the most important part that I've always fallen back on is they were honest. And I think that was important, right? We needed to have an honest conversation about this stuff. From the outside, it might have appeared that Sheldon was doing fine. But at that point in his life, he wasn't. There's this sense that, you know, when you tell your story, things are going to get better. All they're, you know, it's going to go away, and it's not the case. It actually, for me, it got worse. Things became more crazy because now you've told your story. Now it's out there, and whether it was healthy or not, you found a way to live with that ugly, dark secret that was killing you. But you've managed to live, right? Well, now that secret is out of the it's out and it's upside down and sideways and it just it's a very uh yeah actually I felt way more vulnerable after telling my story even though I felt relief it's hard to explain um because it's now it's like what are people gonna think not only did he have the weight of his own abuse on his shoulders 
but the weight of all those people who disclosed their abuse to him on top of the millions of Canadians who supported him. To try and cope, he continued to drink. And during the skate across Canada, he crashed a Hummer. I'd uh, hit a guardrail with um, a rented or a donated a Humvee at the time. And uh, they found some some hash oil in my... So yeah, so, you know, I paid that, dealt with that, paid the public response to that. But, you know, at the end of the day, we, we still raised, I think, $1.7 million with basically no sponsorship or very, very little. Nobody wanted to get involved with these issues. It was, uh, you know, so we raised that money on loonies and toonies. We donated it to the Canadian Red Cross. They were the only person, the only organization that we could find at the time um, that did prevention training sexual abuse prevention training in schools and uh it was called respect ed and uh with that money um you know they helped build the the hockey canada speak out program the kind of trauma he suffered would be difficult for anyone to heal from but factor into that trying to do it while being in the spotlight i finished the rollerblade i went back into treatment i was basically in treatment for eight months and uh and and came out and uh i was 30 at that point and um and i and i didn't i didn't do well after that treatment and and uh um you know i was i was on a run again for another five years and uh and really probably i don't know i don't i hate saying the term rock bottom but i mean i was down and out absolutely and uh I got into treatment again and somehow I managed to get some sobriety from that point on. I was 35 and um, and I'm 51 now and I've been sober, you know, that whole time. But it's not just about being sober. I think to me, um, it's about learning to live. I mean, and, you know, without, with all these feelings and the anxiety and everything that I was like, running away from I had to learn to live with and and try to you know deal with it so it wasn't so overwhelming in my life and and understand it and being able to forgive myself and um but I think really it's about acceptance like I needed to accept the fact that this is what I was but one of the biggest things for me was really learning like really understanding the science and really understanding the impact of trauma and getting to the place to say, okay, you know what? I lived a very normal life for what happened to me. Like, why would I expect anything else? Looking at the way that my life unfolded, I am this, that, that's why I am who I am. Meanwhile, Graham James served less than two years before he was released on parole. After that, he disappeared from the public eye until he was found coaching boys' hockey teams in Spain in the early 2000s. Then, in 2007, he quietly applied for and received a pardon from the National Parole Board. He did this so discreetly that it didn't come to light until several years later when it was revealed to the media by this man. Okay. I'm Greg Gilhooley, 57 years old, grew up in Winnipeg, Manitoba, played hockey, loved hockey, and unfortunately ended up bumping into meeting Graham James. Greg Gilhooley learned of the pardon to the 1997 sex abuse convictions when he went to police in the spring of 2010. At that time, he told investigators he was also sexually abused by Graham James, and his abuse predated the case that put James into the national spotlight. It, it took me decades to come forward after having been abused by Graham. And my recovery has by no means been a straight line. And in fact, coming forward was one of the more difficult things, if not the most difficult thing I've done in my life. Uh, part of recovery was seeking out therapy and being able to tell others about what had happened. And I just felt that I wasn't getting enough traction in my recovery. There was there was clearly something missing, and I, I wasn't uh, addressing the demon that lived within. Greg is a business and legal executive, a writer and a public speaker. 
He's a graduate of Princeton University and the University of Toronto Law School. And for years, he had a very dark secret. So I was, from all appearances on the outside, a, a dream child. I skipped a grade in school. I played age-advanced hockey. You know, I was a young kid playing with older boys. I was a, a successful athlete, a successful student, and uh, was just generally what you would, as a parent, uh, hope your, your kid would be by all outward appearances talented, safe, secure, and happy. I never saw myself that way, but others certainly did see me as a, a very, you know, outgoing and uh, happy child and successful child, uh, the dream child. You can't see me uh, on a radio or on a podcast or anything, but I, I was a, a, a giant as a child and I'm a giant as an adult. I'm six, seven, I'm, you know, 300 pounds now, back when I was fit, I was, you know, 220, 240, incredibly strong and, and able to destroy anything that came, you know, in my way. Uh, so probably if you were to put a list of people in my part of Winnipeg growing up who would be least likely to end up being abused by somebody, it would have been me. Greg was a 14-year-old goalie from an athletic Winnipeg family when he says James first approached him at a hockey tournament in 1979. Well, that, and this is the thing about sexual abuse and grooming is, it's not as if a sexual predator meets a potential target and, you know, there's instant sexual assault. That can happen, and I'm sure that does happen, but that's not what happened with me. We met repeatedly. If I said initially weekly or bi-weekly, it was, it was often, and it was, always done uh, me you know taking a bus or walking to the restaurant and meeting with him and talking about hockey theory and about me as a person he did research on me he knew I was a good student Graham was a substitute teacher in the school division and had access to information about all of us who were playing hockey and in his orbit James sought to be Greg's personal coach and Graham made a point of of making me feel special. He he would tell me things about my my coaches, and he was everything that I wasn't getting at an intellectual level from from my own family, my own father. And he was everything that I I wanted in terms of uh, an athletic mentor. James made himself seem indispensable. He eventually became the most important person in my life, and I know that sounds strange, but. He was someone who was showing an interest. I mean, my dad was a high school dropout and I was skipping grades and could have skipped more kind of thing. Graham was putting his finger on who was holding me back from accomplishing even more and how he could open the doors that others couldn't. And he quickly seized upon the fact that I wanted to be both a, a student and an athlete, not just a student and not just an athlete. James encouraged Greg to do off-ice training which in the 70s was ahead of its time. He asked Greg to keep the training sessions a secret. The summer workout started getting more and more intense, more and more intense. And then one night where I'm just exhausted as the, the sun has gone down and it's dark in, in a field behind where, where Graham was living. Graham always had excuses for not doing the exercises. He would just watch. He would watch me go through all of this, this pain and whatever. And so we're sitting there and he starts saying, you know, the interesting thing, Greg, is, you know, hockey players, you have to be strong. You have to carry so much strength. And, and you know, most of the strength you develop through your body is in the torso. And you have to take that through the hips and down through the legs. And the fascinating thing about hockey is that all of that power then has to move from the legs through the ankles to the feet. And then from the feet to two edges on a skate blade on each foot. And so what's the, the critical the critical part of a hockey player's body? The feet. You have to have good feet, strong feet. Let's take a look at your feet. And uh, I willingly, you know, take my shoes off and my socks off and Graham starts fondling my feet. And uh, that was the, the first time that the physical barrier was broken. Greg told me he didn't realize he was being groomed that what James was doing was wrong and would soon progress. The foot massages after an intense workout felt phenomenal. Here, I thought Graham was helping me out, making my body 
uh, respond in a good way after a tough workout in a way that would let me become a better athlete. And then the, the massages, you know, they started to involve more and more of the body until, you know, one night in his apartment, the room in the house, it, it was more than just a massage. Greg felt trapped and had no idea how he could possibly tell anyone about what was happening. He's the most important person in my life. I've kept months of secrets from my family. Who's going to believe me that I've been leading this double life doing this with that guy who's teacher, uh, hockey coach, uh, make or break me with you know one sentence to somebody. When Greg went to police in 2010, there were several former hockey players who did the same. One of those was Todd Holt. Todd grew up in a small farming community in southeast Saskatchewan, where again, hockey was life. He met James in the early 80s. I think I was about 11 or 12 when I met him, because Theo was about four or five years old, so he would have been 16 or so, Theo, 16 or 17. We were at a hockey school in Regina, and lo and behold, I think we went to an AW or something. We were sitting there eating, and, and we looked over, and there was Theo and, and Graham James. And of course, Mom ran to say hi to Theo and said hi to Graham. And, and that just kind of, that's how we got introduced. It was just kind of fluky that we were there. Theo Fleury is Todd's cousin. Todd said he saw how Graham James was helping Theo, and so he jumped at the opportunity to learn from him as well. So when I was 15, before I ever made the team, I went up there for, um, they had the parade, they had won the Memorial Cup. Sheldon Sheldon and Joe, or Sheldon and the team won the Memorial Cup in 88-89 in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. And so when they had the parade, I was invited to come be a part of it. And uh, it was when I was there. That's when the first time Graham had ever touched me or um, I was tr- trying to sleep on his couch. And, uh, you know, and all of a sudden I felt someone grabbing my feet and, you know, trying to think to yourself, no, this can't be happening. Or what's, what is this? Or what's he doing? And it was so confusing and you're like, this is like the coach of the team that I want to play for. And you're so, so confused at the time. You don't know when it's real or not. And uh, I remember I didn't even go to the parade. I was I was scared when to go home. So I drove home and pretended like nothing happened. And just kind of thought, you know what? <laughs> Maybe he was goofing around or, you know, you don't... He just won the Hockey News Man of the Year. And, you know, this is one of the most respected men in hockey. The abuse progressed. A couple times a week, he'd expect you to come over. And sometimes he'd invite you over for supper or just stop by after practice and, you know, and, and visit him. And, you know what, he would, it was, like he said, he, he said he, he loved us. He said he was, you know, we were his life. And... You know, I said, I don't think anybody you love you treat that way, but that's just my my perspective, I guess. If Todd said no and refused to go, there was a price to pay. I would say no quite often. And the team would be bag skated. I would be fined. He would make me to the point where, you know, not that we made a bunch of money, but, you know, you get 60 bucks every two weeks or 60 bucks a month or what, I can't remember what it was, but you know what, he, my paychecks would be $1. The only place Todd said he felt safe was on the ice. He poured his heart and soul into playing hockey. Off the ice, his life began to spiral. He had no idea how to cope with the trauma he was suffering. Everything you question your manhood, you question everything, you know. And then he had girlfriends and different things back then, and I, I couldn't imagine what it was like, you know. Like, like I've this is a I'd be honest with you, and I said it, it changed my sex life forever, you know. I said, even to even today, I said, Nancy, it's you know, what. What has changed and how we look at it, and the whole act of it, it's, it's, you know, it really, it's, it's different to us. And I said, you know, it's a direct result of those times with Graham, for sure, I can guarantee you. 
he literally took our childhood and you know and then when you're you're done you think you're away you graduated you know you don't realize it at the time but you're you're so empty and it's just poured every every life part of your body your soul he's just ravaged it ruined it confused it and and then you're just left there to to carry on your life what makes his story so mind-blowing to me is that todd made the courageous decision to come forward and disclose that he was abused todd recalls that was in 1993 or 1994 but nothing was done Todd confided in a friend, a teammate who also played in Swift Current. There was an incident um, in Swift Current. Our captains, our staff, our players had a closed-door meeting, and me and another player couldn't be in there because we're obviously we're one of one or two of the guys that were getting abused. But uh, so they had a meeting and they were asking the organization to terminate Graham. They know what's going on. They're going to spill the beans. They're going to tell everybody in the world what's going on. And and so they had this big meeting. They were having a going to bring Graham in and they were supposed to let him go. And so they're sitting amongst some players and of course Graham blah 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 crying and. You know, playing his world's smallest fiddle for everyone, just standing in front of there, and he, the organization is nope. If people deserve a second chance, and they kept him. Instead of Graham James being held accountable by the adults who now knew of the abuse, Todd said the players who took this information to the organization were let go. So Graham left the following year after that. He was started the Hitman. And that's where, you know, Sheldon was playing for the Flames. And, uh, yeah, Sheldon tells his story. He used to see Graham having one-on-one meetings with the kids in the hallway, and he knew exactly what was going on. Again, this happened in 93-94, at least two years before Sheldon Kennedy went to police in 1996. There was one other player who came forward to police in 2010. My name is Theo Fleury, and I am a uh, trauma, mental health, and addiction um, advocate. I played in the NHL for 15 years. I'm the Stanley Cup champion, Olympic gold medalist, uh, all that stuff. A year earlier, in 2009, Theo released a book called Playing With Fire, where he told his story. As you'll recall, Detective Bell investigated Sheldon's case back in 1996, and he mentioned there were suspicions that Theo Fleury was also abused by Graham James. But being identified as someone who's been abused and being ready to share your story are two very different things. It was the toughest six months of my life, and that's when my uh, cocaine addiction really started sort of kicked in was around that time. I was the captain of the Calgary Flames. And I knew that, you know, me coming out at that time would, you know, destroy the team. It would destroy the team for the rest of the year, you know. And, you know, there's no handbook, right? There's, and I wasn't ready to deal with it, right? I wasn't ready to deal with it, which is my priority. It's my prerogative. I can do whatever I want. When Sheldon came out with his story, I chose to deal with it a different way. And I was criticized for that, right? And who, you know, so there's, you know, there was judgment attached to it by a bunch of people who have no idea what the hell people who are sexually abused go through. You know, and everybody has their own process. So, you know, I chose to deal with it a different way. And I think I actually uh, did very well dealing with whatever I had to deal with, right? And, you know, now I'm I'm in a position where I've helped millions of people overcome their, you know, their stories. 
But Theo said even before Sheldon came forward, people knew he was one of the victims. That included players, coaches, adults. Yeah, everybody knew. Everybody knew. Everybody knew and they did nothing about it. Theo said to make matters worse, he was bullied, tormented, and subjected to homophobic slurs. We were doing a lot of trash talking back in the day on the ice and, you know, there was many times I was called a homo, a faggot, you know, all those things. And I was just like, how does everybody know, right? Theo had a tough childhood. He said both of his parents suffered childhood trauma that led to addictions issues. He was a very talented player, but hockey was also an escape. He was determined to make it. You know, I grew up in a small town. I. From a very young age, I had a dream that I wanted to play in the NHL. And, you know, I don't know how many six-year-olds, you know, that are that focused, uh, that, uh, you know, are willing to tell people that, you know, someday they're going to play in the NHL. And so my first contact with Graham was at a hockey school in Brandon, Manitoba, where he was one of the instructors at the hockey school. And, uh, you know, obviously I made a, an impression on him. And then... Uh, you know, and then he started grooming me uh, almost immediately. Graham came to Russell, my hometown, sat me and my parents around the kitchen table and basically said to them that uh, we think Theo needs better competition, uh, better coaching. Uh, we'll put him in a with a good billet in a good school. And, uh, you know, obviously my parents knew what I wanted to be and what knew what I wanted to do, so they didn't hold me back. And I moved to Winnipeg. Uh, when I was 15 years old, and needless to say, that that decision uh, would change me for the rest of my life. And uh, you know, over the next two and a half years, I, you know, I was basically raped by him, you know, over 150 times, and and uh, yeah, it caused me a lot of uh, shame and guilt and anger and resentment and. Uh, and there was no, <clears throat> and there was nobody I could have, you know, told, because first of all, I knew that I wouldn't be believed, and then second of all, I knew that that would be the end of my hockey career. And I remember, you know, the first time that that happened, and I just said to myself, "I'm fucked," you know, this is this is not good. And and uh, but, you know, this guy had my hockey career, you know, basically in his hands, and you know, uh, dictated pretty much. Uh, everything that was going on. At the time Theo Fleury, Todd Holt, and Greg Gilhooley came forward and new charges were laid against him, Graham James was a free man. He had been for 12 years and was now living in Mexico. Then, in 2011, he pleaded guilty, but not to all of the charges. Today, uh, convicted pedophile Graham James pled guilty in Winnipeg courtroom to sexually assaulting me as an adolescent. It's taken years for this moment. Graham James admitting to sexually assaulting two former players, including Calgary Flames star Theron Fleury. Graham James admitted he sexually abused Theo Fleury and Todd Holt between 1983 and 1994. However, he did not admit to abusing Greg Gilhooley. Those charges were stayed. Greg said he's since heard James claimed he didn't abuse him, but rather that it was consensual. I was going to confront Graham and I was going to make a show of it. And I was going to just show him that, you know, no matter what he did to me back then and what he was doing to me by denying that. Uh, remember, in my mind at that time, I thought he was just denying that anything had happened that I was still here and screw him. I, I was going to be a, be a success in front, in front of him. Obviously very upset, Greg had a plan. At his uh, the sentencing hearing, where the evidence was going to be relayed, he was sitting at, at his table facing the judge in front of the crowd, never looking back, no opportunity for him to see anybody behind him. And he did not move from that position the entire, entire day but, but to go to the washroom during a break. And when he was being led back into the courtroom from the washroom during a break, he had to walk along a wall parallel to the, um, 
the, the, the viewing stand for the observers uh, of the trial. And the bailiffs were gonna call me over so I could sort of lean out over the edge and, and just sort of show Graham my face. And we had it all planned out and we had a space reserved and two bailiffs were, were ready to block people so that I would have a clear passageway there. Everyone was in on this and, and was there to, to support me. And I got the wave, I got the nod. Graham's on his way back into the courtroom and he's gonna have to walk right by me if I move over to this space. So I hustle over to the space, I stand and face him. And so he would have come around a corner in handcuffs, maybe 30, 40 feet away and he was looking at the ground and then he looked up and I saw his eyes and it was as if I was a 15 year old kid again being abused by him. I instantly shut down and panicked and started to shake and turn away and, and, and just bolted from that spot. I could not even stand to look at him in the eyes. At the hearing in March of 2012, Graham James was sentenced to two years in prison for sexually abusing Theo Fleury, and Todd Holt. And again, there was no justice at all for Greg Gilhooley. You know, you can, you can screw with people's lives and, and ruin lives by, with sexual abuse and, and that, that whole power that they take over you. They can do that and they get two years. That sentence was appealed by the prosecution and was increased twice. First, to five years. Then, another two years was added to his sentence to be served consecutively when yet another victim came forward. According to documents obtained from the Parole Board of Canada, James's file reveals six official victims, but goes on to state he's admitted to having had sexual intercourse with around 20 hockey players he was coaching, using manipulation, control, and his position of trust and authority to facilitate those assaults. The board noted while in custody, he was positively involved in his correctional plan and cascaded to a minimum security facility by 2013. In January of 2016, James was granted day parole. Months later, he was granted full parole. The board said James presents a low risk for reoffending. That's something none of his victims believe. Anyone who thinks that Graham is no longer out there abusing kids, I mean, how naive would we as a society have to be? Graham just doesn't all of a sudden wake up one day and see the virtue of the other side and, and realize the error of his ways and everything that he did and stood for. That, that's just not the way we as human beings operate. Graham is wired differently. Uh, he, he's a predator who's out on the loose. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, if you look at <clears throat> when in his um, character witness, character reference in his court, in his uh, sentencing hearing, he had two moms come up from Mexico. They both had four kids each. And he was this beautiful man that gave them gifts and helped them with school. So, like, I don't know. So if you really don't want to do it, and you're really committed to not doing it and something that you're, you know, you've admitted is a problem, then why are you, why are you hanging around them again? Sheldon told me he's aware of yet another victim of Graham James who's gone to police. Currently, James is going by the name Michael James and is believed to be living in Montreal. The men I interviewed for this episode have all lobbied for change. That includes changes to Canadian law. When the government learned James received a pardon, they took immediate steps to amend the Criminal Records Act to ensure anyone convicted of sexually assaulting a child could no longer receive a pardon, now known as a record suspension. Sheldon, Theo, Todd, and Greg all work to empower victims to take control back from their abusers. We've done a horrible job of uh, creating uh, an environment uh, where people can freely and openly uh, talk about, you know, what happened to them. You know, it's like it's like when I stand on stage and uh, 
And when I'm speaking and I say, you know, I was raped 150 times by my coach. And, you know, there's no shame in me. There's no embarrassment. There's no guilt. There's none of that. But my audience, every single one person in my audience, their, their head hits the floor and they project the shame, you know, on top of me. And so, you know, makes makes it very sort of uh, um, apparent, you know, that we haven't done a very good job of, you know, uh, creating safe spaces or safe environments where people can talk about their, you know, their trauma history. Each will tell you they have their own path to healing. I had to really practice learning how to talk about the way I felt. And I think that's the biggest thing. I think people go to counselors or psychologists two sessions and they say it doesn't work. Well, you know, how I look at like I look at therapy and I look at like well-being as practice. We need to practice it. And the better we can practice it, the better we're going to get about it. So, the better we're going to get at it. So, I just try to practice you know, talking about and paying attention to how I feel and making sure that I talk to somebody. I had a spiritual grandmother uh, from Siksika. Uh, her name is Shield Woman. And she used to bring a bunch of kids to my hockey school when I had it in Calgary. And her and I became incredible friends. And, uh, and then I got traded from Calgary and we kind of lost touch with each other. And then when I moved back to Calgary and I think it was 04. And then I started my concrete business. One day she came walking through the front doors of the business and sat down at my board table and we just sort of picked up where we left off. And 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 then she started, um, you know, guiding me spiritually and, you know, started teaching me about, you know, the smudge and, you know, I went to my first sweat lodge and then and then my book came out and now I've been to 420 of the 630 Aboriginal communities in Canada and, and really it's those people who've given me back my, back my life spiritually. Well, I, I'm actually an honorary chief out at Siksika and uh, I'm also a pipe carrier now. Since coming forward in 1996, Sheldon has gone on to receive one of the country's top honours, the Order of Canada. He's dedicated his life to raising awareness about sexual abuse. You know, you and I have told a lot of good stories to educate people, and that's the thing. It's not just about telling a story about this stuff. People want to learn about it, so learn about what they can do. So we can't just tell a story. To me, we need, we need to educate, but we also need to leave people with tools, and I think we did that. And it's like, let's look a little bit farther than, and let's just, you know, spend a little time because they're probably telling us in their own way without saying the words. And I, that was me. I mean, I was trying to tell people as loud as I could and, you know, I just, without saying the words, and we need to be able to pick up on that stuff and understand the signs. And that's, you know, I think we've come a long ways. We got a long ways to go. I don't ever feel there's a finish line with this stuff. Sheldon Kennedy opened a door and started an important conversation about child sexual abuse in sport. And now these brave men are holding that door open to continue the conversation. Thank you for joining me this week. And thank you to Sheldon, Theo, Todd, and Greg for sharing your stories with me. Crime Beat is written and produced by me, Nancy Hickst, with producer Dila Velasquez. Audio editing and sound design is by Rob Johnston. Special thanks to photographer-editor Danny Lantella for his work on this episode. Additional hockey archival assistance by Cami Kepke and Michelle Goslin. And thanks to Chris Bassett, the acting VP of National and Network News for Global News. I would love to have you tell a friend about this podcast, and you can help me share these important stories by rating and reviewing Crime Beat on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can find me on Twitter at Nancy Hickst, on Facebook at Nancy Hickst Crime Beat, and I would love to have you join me for added content on Instagram at nancy.hickst. That's N-A-N-C-Y dot H-I-X-T. 
Thanks again for listening. Please join me next time. A gunman on the loose in a quiet coastal town. By morning, 22 people were dead. I'm Sarah Ritchie. I live in Halifax, and I'm a reporter for Global News. On my new podcast, 13 Hours, Inside the Nova Scotia Massacre, we'll examine every hour of this tragedy to try and piece together what happened and what could have been done to prevent it. You can listen to 13 Hours, Inside the Nova Scotia Massacre for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.